Welcome to Dig, the History Podcast. In 1987, a scholar by the name of Martin Bernal published a historiographical work that argued a racist and imperialist Europe had written Egyptian and Phoenician origins out of Greek history, thereby whitewashing the classical roots of Western civilization. This theory was not without immediate and harsh critics. The initial publication, the the first of an eventual three volumes dealing with this hypothesis, and a fourth that was entirely a refutation of criticism, was titled Black Athena, The Fabrication of Ancient Greece, 1785 to 1985. It was unapologetically combative. In his own words, Bernal asserted that the, quote, political purpose of Black Athena is, of course, to lessen European cultural arrogance. Damn. Though problematic, as his critics so helpfully pointed out, Bernal's thesis is an interesting one. Just as interesting, though, is the controversy that erupted around this middle-class, highly educated, white British man who lived in America at the time, and his Afrocentric assertion. His privilege gave authority to an issue that African-American scholars had been resisting for decades. Those who reacted did so as much, if not more, because of who he was as because of the idea that he codified in his trilogy. In later years, he reflected that he knew the idea gained traction in the mostly white community of ancient history scholars because he was a white man and a big personality who could drum up popular support for the idea. He also recognized that though they appreciated the attention to the thesis, his co-opting of this significant issue was frustrating to the community of Black scholars who had been saying the same thing for years. Today's episode is about the thesis that Bernal posed in his Black Athena, but it's also a peek behind the curtain of the academic world. It might get a little weird here because our discussion will be about the evidence Bernal used to support his assertion that Egyptian and Levantine uh, civilizations significantly shaped the ancient Greek civilization. But we will also kind of like dive into the backlash against Bernal's work and what that says about a profession and how even historians are human and thus susceptible to the world in which we live. Um, But it's definitely a story worth telling, worth hearing, and so we're glad you're joining us for it. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And we're your historians for this episode of DIG. The ancient world is a fascinating period to study. Some colleges and universities, like ours, separate those who study the ancient world from history departments. Our understanding of any historical period is limited by the sources. When it comes to studying the ancient world, sometimes we are so far removed from that period that even the evidence we do have is circumstantial, subject to educated guesses from those who interpret it. When a carved stone structure is uncovered at an archaeological dig site in the river valley of Mesopotamia in modern-day Iraq, there is no user manual to accompany it. So scholars have to use context and circumstance to develop an understanding of the structure. 
This is not to suggest that there's not valid or substantial work coming out of the efforts of ancient world scholars. But as in every period of history, whenever new discoveries of source material are made, this scholarship that is constantly evolving today to incorporate new evidence or older evidence reinterpreted. In part, this is why studying the ancient world is so fascinating. It is so far in the past, but our understanding of it could change significantly at any moment. When Bernal insinuated himself into this conversation about the roots of Greek culture, he inevitably ruffled feathers. Um, He was not the first to challenge what he and his circle considered the Eurocentrist production of knowledge. And a whole host of black scholars have been protesting the whitewashing of history for decades before Bernal. Cheek A. Diop, Frank Snowden Jr., St. Clair Drake, W.E. Du Bois, William Leo Hansberry, and Carter Woodson, to name a few, wrote on this subject and sought recognition of or our rewriting of history to include the African roots of civilization in their fields. Uh, Joel Rogers uh, wrote in World's Great Men of Color in 1946, and George G.M. James wrote Stolen Legacy in 1954, sort of titles that communicate their uh, dissatisfaction with the scholarship. Right. Um, And they had made similar assertions to what Bernal says in his texts um, half a century before him. There was a burgeoning field making this assertion uh, in the 1980s, which went well beyond what Bernal argued in Black Athena and made some interesting claims. Um, and we'll, we'll explain why interesting <laughs> is the friendly way that I'm going to describe it here by selectively and creatively making connections between African heritage and culture um, and Western civilization mm-hmm. with titles like Joseph A.A. Ben Johannan, uh, African origins of the major Western, in quotes, religions um, in 1970, and Malefi Kete Ashante's Kemet Afrocentricity and Knowledge in 1990. Martin Bernal was born in 1937 in London. He did his undergraduate and graduate work at King's College London, Peking University, and Cambridge University, where he studied Chinese history and language. His doctoral dissertation was titled Chinese Socialism to 1913. In 1972, Bernal moved to the United States, took a post at Cornell University, where he remained until he retired in 2001. I'm just going to pause here to note... That when he got that job at Cornell, he also brought along with him his wife, who was a sociologist um, named Dr. Leslie Miller Bernal, who taught at my alma mater, Wells mm. College. And so that this whole thing was a thing at Wells, this whole controversy. You are early in his Cornell career. He made a pretty radical shift in his research focus. According to Bernal, he first got interested in ancient Mediterranean history because of his Jewish ancestry. Uh, quote, I had not previously given much thought to my Jewish roots or Jewish culture. I started looking into ancient Jewish history and being on the periphery myself into the relationship between the Israelites and the surrounding peoples, particularly the Canaanites and the Phoenicians. I had always known that the latter spoke Semitic languages, but it came as quite a shock to learn that Hebrew and Phoenician were mutually intelligible and that serious linguistics treated both as a dialect of a single Canaanite language. During this time, I was beginning to study Hebrew, and I found what seemed to me to be a number of striking similarities between it and Greek. That was a really interesting accent. That's my white man voice. Oh, okay. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. 
It sounds right, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. The first book on this subject that he published was the first volume of Black Athena. Black Athena, Afro-Asiatic Roots of Classical Civilization, Volume 1, The Fabrication of Ancient Greece, 1785 to 1985, was published by Rutgers Press. In this work, Bernal outlined the ways that European scholars of the ancient world gradually shifted from what he terms the ancient model to the Aryan model. Bernal argues that ancient scholars such as Herodotus, Thucydides, Isocrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Plutarch, inarguably closer to the period in question than the 19th and 20th century historians, discuss the role of the Egyptians and Levantines, or the Phoenicians, on early Greek settlements. The ancient model that Bernal refers to, then, is his interpretation of the perspective of Greeks during the classical and Hellenistic ages, and is thus evidence that Greek culture emerged because Egyptian and Phoenicians colonized the native inhabitants of the Greek peninsula and the islands around 1500 BCE. He points out in particular to Herodotus's histories, which suggests that at the time he wrote it in the 5th century, there was a popular belief that Greece had been colonized at the end of the heroic age. And just to sort of illustrate so you can get a sense of the sources that he that that Bernal is using to support his thesis, I pulled a few quotes from Herodotus's histories. Um, so first, concerning Heracles, I heard it said that he was one of the twelve gods, but nowhere in Egypt could I hear anything about the other Heracles, whom the Greeks know. I have indeed a lot of other evidence that the name of Heracles did not come from Hellas to Egypt, but from Egypt to Hellas. And Heracles is a mythological figure or, or god mm -hmm. um, and is shared by both the Egyptians and the Greeks. Another quote. These customs then, and others besides, which I shall indicate, were taken by the Greeks from the Egyptians. And a third quote. The fashions of divination at Thebes of Egypt and at Dodona are like one another. Moreover, the practice of divining from the sacrificed victim has also come from Egypt. It would seem, too, that the Egyptians were the first people to establish solemn assemblies and processions and services. The Greeks learned all that from them. So in Black Athena... Bernal pits what he terms this ancient model, which he says was widely accepted and understood in Europe until the mid-18th century, against what he terms the Aryan model, which he charged as rising at the end of the 18th century. He argues that both racism and romanticism dominated European thought and that the focus of various emerging disciplines, from the phrenologists to the biologists to the anthropologists and historians, focused on categorizing peoples and races. In this wave of scholarship, there was a marked shift away from the traditions of Herodotus and his contemporaries with regard to understanding the roots of Greek civilization toward one that centered Greece as the root of civilization in the world. In the lead up to the Aryan model, Bernal examines the shifting attitudes of Europeans towards Egypt specifically, but also Asia and Africa more broadly throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. In addition to a few key notable figures like Isaac Newton, Bernal focuses on the criticism and rejection of the work of Charles-Francois Dupuy. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. My Frenchie isn't here to read it I for know. me. Where's Marissa when you need her? Uh, who was a French professor of rhetoric who argued that Christianity was an amalgamation of various ancient mythologies and that Jesus was a mythical character. 
Dupuis similarly challenged the myth of Greek cultural beginning. On both counts, he was deemed absurd and dismissed by Christian writers, and those, according to Bernal, were proponents of the Aryan model. Though the shift itself was largely gradual, Bernal contested by the end of the 19th century, it was codified. He pointed to the way that the 19th century scholars of the humanities and social sciences categorized people of African descent as inferior, and the ways that racism and romanticism refocused the origins of civilization around Greek legacy. Mm -hmm. He wrote, quote, thus it became increasingly intolerable that Greece, which was seen by the romantics not merely as the epitome of of Europe, but also as its pure childhood, could be the result of the mixture of Native Europeans and colonizing Africans and Semites, end mm, quote. Interesting. So this period, from approximately 1880 to 1945, um, Bernal actually calls the extreme Aryan model, where the historiography more broadly, and not just in its treatment of ancient history, reflects efforts to discredit African influence on European civilizations, um, particularly the Levantine and thereby Semitic Phoenicians. So this was mega racist in that period between 1880 and 1945. Certainly consistent with what we as modern scholars know about that time period. It, mm. it certainly lines up. Oh, yeah. Um, not by coincidence, this con coincides with the continued oppression of people of color in the United States under Jim Crow and segregation laws. I, I don't think it's incidental that the uh, highest number of lynchings in the United States takes place in 1880 mm -hmm. or excuse me, 1890. So right in that period yeah. um, and in the Nuremberg laws passed by the overtly anti-Semitic Nazi Party in 1930s Germany. Within this rampant ideological slant, stuff like the Holocaust happened. And this is not part of Bernal's analysis, but it should certainly be seen as an extension of that criticism. The kicker, though, is that immediately after the Holocaust, European policymakers worked to prevent another Holocaust. Not immediately and not perhaps in the most effective or efficient ways, but steps were taken in the decades after 1945 to denormalize anti-Semitism. And yet, the scholarship and historiographical traditions of this extreme Aryan model of academia, which whitewashed history in the most insidious ways, were not challenged or reshaped or thrown out. Bernal argued then not that the Aryan model is wrong, though it certainly left glaring omissions and propagated some particularly racist ideas about the past, but that a new model, a revised ancient model, which is proposed in the second volume of the series, would mitigate the historiography that had so clearly been impacted by the sentiments and institutions of the 19th century. Concerned in particular that going forward, we were working from this flawed and whitewashed base, Bernal wrote, quote, the modern archaeologists and ancient historians of this region are still working with models set up by men who were crudely positivist and racist. Thus, it is extremely implausible to suppose the models were not influenced by this idea. Bernal basically calls Americans and Europeans out. By the 1980s, with the emergence of new fields like women's studies and African-American studies, etc., he saw the academy as operating as though it had moved beyond the Aryan model. That we were living, even then, in a post-racist world. Grown. <laughs> in academia, at least, right? right? Uh, which we, of course, still believe. Black Athena negates 
such a misconception because, in fact, the here in this one issue, the roots of classical civilization, the racism, in Bernal's opinion, persisted in the academy, not perhaps as overtly or purposefully as it had in the extreme Aryan model period, but the ongoing denial of this connection between Egypt, the Phoenicians, and the emergence of Greek civilization perpetuated the institution that denied people of African descent their place in history. Ultimately, Bernal wrote the volumes supporting this thesis. The first, as we've just discussed, dealt with historiography, or in other words, the history of how historians have written on a subject. In his second volume, where he stepped back from comparing the ancient model to the Aryan model and instead proposed a revised ancient model for the modern scholar, relied on archaeological and documentary evidence, published in 1991. Various scholars have quibbled with his use of sources in the volume, particularly with his roundabout connections between the Greek god Pan, the Egyptian pharaoh god Min, and the reign of King Minos of the Minoans. But some of his other examples, like the presence of arguably Egyptian-influenced pottery and architecture in early Greek settlements, seems feasible, at least. He responded to critics in 2001, the same year he retired from Cornell, in Black Athena Writes Back, and he published the third and final volume of the series in 2006. In book three, he focused specifically on the issue that drew him to the topic at first, language. He'd written an extensive study of the Greek alphabet in 1990 titled The Cadmion Letters, which undoubtedly informed his much later work for the third Black Athena volume. So now that you get a sense of where Bernal was coming from, uh, I want to return to this fact that, you know, this inspired an immense backlash from the ancient scholar community. So the, re- so the responses to Bernal's first volume uh, was swift. Um, Mary Lefkowitz, who was a classics professor at Wellesley College, was asked to write a rebuttal for the New Republic shortly after the publication of Bernal's second book, um, Cadmian Letters, in the same year of the publication of Volume 2 of Black Athena. Five years later, after numerous attacks from the various sides of this controversy, she wrote a monograph expansion of her article subject. The book, um, which shared the title with the article, was Not Out of Africa, How Afrocentrism Became an Excuse to Teach Myth as History. Damn. Yeah. And this um, obviously takes issue with Brunel's initial thesis, but it also has a number of other criticisms just of uh, a sort of third party uh, involved in this controversy. Mm. So she argues first that the Greek sources he built this, his narrative on were mistaken themselves, the, these scholars, of the ancient world, um, like Herodotus. Yeah. Mm, okay. And that the authors quote, interpreted Egyptian culture in terms of Greek custom and experience. So essentially that, they, Herodotus and Thucydides, they understood Egyptian culture from the lens of their own experiences in Greek culture. And so they were themselves drawing these weird connections, um, perhaps incorrectly. She asserts that the Egypt in those accounts never existed and that the Freemasons and other Egyptophiles from the first part of the 19th century um had, in the first part of the 19th century, like Bernal, incorrectly interpreted these sources to name the Egyptians as the root of Western civilization. So essentially she's saying that this is already, we've already had this conversation. We had this conversation 160 years ago. 
because this the Freemasons were all obsessed with it was like Egypt mania, and they were arguing even then that Egypt was the root of all Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And so she's saying, but they too were doing they were they're incorrectly interpreting these sources just as Brunel is now. Hmm. Okay. The third camp in this controversy, you have like Mary Lefkowitz um, and her contingent of ancient scholars. Then you have Brunel, who's this, you know, he's this white British Sino historian who is. Yeah, not a classicist. Not a classicist, but he's taking it up as a hobby. Right. So it makes him an expert. Which I just should interject can be kind of a bone of contention for scholars. It can. When you've spent your career on a certain subject and then somebody swans in. Yep. Oh, it, I, it can I, be very irritating. We'll, re- we'll repeat that at the end. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I also thought those same things. Okay. Um, so he's he's like the second camp, or I guess he's the first camp. Mary Lefkowitz is the second camp. And then off in the corner are all these black scholars. Right. Africana studies, African-American studies scholars. Um who I sort of mentioned in the beginning, who had been making similar similar arguments throughout the 20th century. Um, but they're also, as Lefkowitz is going to sort of reveal, I guess, in her investigation of this issue, and sort of this is what is conveyed by her title, uh, Not Out of Africa, um, How Afrocentrism Became an Excuse to Teach Myth, teach myth as History, um, because they're creating myths or using myths or using this using these sources to blackwash i guess history Mm -hmm. so instead of all the people who are important being white they're asserting that all the people who are important in history were african right without evidence right in many cases yeah yeah okay so continue Lefkowitz and her camp took issue with three key components of Bernal's argument and the Afrocentrists who used Black Athena to support their version of history. Her first criticism was of Bernal's evidence, and as Averill just noted, Lefkowitz believed that Bernal was falling prey to the same mythology of the Egyptophiles of the 19th century. She calls in Not Out of Africa for all those invested in this discussion to learn about Egypt, about Greece, about Africa rather than making wild assertions like that Socrates was African, and further for academics to put a stop to legitimizing these kinds of stories, even if it seeks to repair a deeper sociopolitical problem of racism in society. And additionally, scholars in the fields of study of the ancient world were offended by Brunel and the Ashanti at Temple University and Benjo Kanan, who I mentioned at the beginning, and their loud and insistent assertion that the entire lot of the classicists were straight up racist. Um, Mary Lefkowitz earned her degree in 1961 from the then gender segregated Radcliffe, Harvard, Harvard's sister school, and cut her teeth on some of the most important work of giving a voice to the women of the ancient world. Um, nothing cuts a feminist like Lefkowitz more than telling her that she is racist. Right. Um, the attacks were not just accusations of racism, however. Uh, when Lefkowitz attended a lecture that Yosef A.A. Ben-Jokanen gave at Wellesley, she challenged his arguments from the audience in the question period, and he in turn accused her of leading a Jewish onslaught to attack the oppressed black people of America. Like, the Jewish conspiracy kind of stuff the yeah the anti-semitic so we've got levels of of racism oh yeah here. yeah yeah 
The way that the Afrocentrists rewrote the past to advance current political debates, however, was the true issue that Lefkowitz and those who joined her for the second rebuttal were concerned about. A 500-page collection of articles refuting Black Athena's claims and the larger issues. Though they easily cut through Bernal's errors and selective use of evidence to fit his hypothesis, her deepest qualm was the way the self-proclaimed Afrocentrist circle of academics seized on Bernal's study as evidence that the Greeks stole African culture and that there has been a conspiracy to cover it up and malign people of African descent for centuries. More, as Lefkowitz writes in the preface to Not Out of Africa, this went deeper than a single Cornell professor's pet project. She writes, For many years, a course had been offered in Wellesley's Africana Studies Department called Africans in Antiquity. I had always thought that the course was about historical Africa. But now as a result of my research, I realized instead that the ancient Africans and its subject matter were figures such as Socrates and Cleopatra, and that among the facts of African ancient history were the same bogus claims about Greek philosophy that I had previously uncovered. Lefkowitz recognizes the reason that these scholars have appropriated the history to empower an oppressed population. People of color are still widely and grossly underrepresented in the academy, and the continent of Africa and its peoples and its history are equally grossly underestimated in our curriculum and history departments. Even at the University of Buffalo, when I was a teaching assistant for the first half of world of a world history sequence, no matter who the instructor was, the entire continent like got one lecture if if it got covered at all. Right. In one of these classes that I TA'd for, we spent four weeks. On ancient Rome. Right. In another, with a different professor, we spent at least that many classes talking about various barbarians of the steppes of Eurasia. Right. And that is absolutely a reflection of the individuals who taught those classes, professors who were experts in ancient Rome or modern Russia, respectively, and thus tailored the course to what they knew best. But in a world history class... Whether we're at the high school or the college level, it seems like there should be a greater effort to de-Europeanize that discussion. And I think that, at the very least, with all of the errors of Bernal's work, that is, I think, something that should be taken seriously. Right. Um, Europe was pretty much a backwater pit of hillbillies and superstitious fools until the Renaissance. Right. And really after that, too. Yeah. Um, Particularly for the courses that cover the ancient world to 1500, in no way should we be focusing on the minuscule happenings of the northern Mediterranean in a bubble. Right. And I don't think that that's what was happening in those classes that I was a teaching assistant uh, for at all. In that class taught by the Roman historian Don McGuire, for example, there's a really great emphasis on the diffusion of culture and trade and people around the Mediterranean, um, the interactions and circulations of ideas by the various peoples, and particularly by those Phoenician traders who did a lot of the legwork. But balance and ongoing discussion are the crux of shaking up the Eurocentric model for something less fixedly centric at all. It shouldn't be Afrocentric. It shouldn't be Eurocentric if we're teaching world history. Um, It should be more fluid and conversational. 
it isn't helpful to rewrite history, to recast Socrates as an African, um, and to do so without any actual evidence is right. even more problematic, um, to fabricate a more palatable or exciting narrative of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't particularly, as a teacher, and we are teachers, ask, what if Socrates was black? And then leave your students thinking that he was. Right. (laughs) First, because there's no circumstantial evidence that could even give that question plausibility. Um, It is thus then one of those very, you know, we say there's no stupid questions, but that is a stupid question. But there are stupid questions. There are stupid questions. And second, it is our duty, yes, to give our students, to get our students to be inquisitive and to think for themselves. But feeding them misinformation is not a constructive way to do that. Right. And I, I don't want to take us down a different path here, but your you know, what if Socrates was black question. I think that there is a what if Socrates is black question for for all disciplines or for all areas of study. Like there's that there's one or two or three questions that people have like tried to propose. Yeah. And it's pointless it ends up being a time waster yeah. because you you're you end up spending all this time talking about what if socrates was black and it doesn't actually matter we end up spending our time in counterfactuals right instead of trying to better understand the time period as mm-hmm. it was and so there are these questions in the civil war era one is like what if lee um what if the confederacy had not failed at pickett's charge at at gettysburg and and people will spend years books entire books like thinking about that question right what would have happened would the confederacy have won and it doesn't matter it's all counterfactual that's not what happened you know let's spend our time focusing on what actually happened and one other civil war related thing i promise this is the ancient world i have to get it back to the civil war somehow this your socrates what if socrates was black question reminds me of not that long ago there was this kind of a similar controversy over abraham lincoln not that he was black but that (laughs) he was gay oh yeah and i I think that part of it had uh, was an um, updated version of sort of the same kind of wanting to find our heroes oh yeah and make them a part of a different community or or make them a part of a community um that feels as though they don't have heroes in american history no or yeah. they don't have public heroes yeah right i mean i'm absolutely an lgbtq history style or scholar right scholar yeah. of this of this history and one of the things we talk about when we are first talking about this in grad school is that the first wave of gay history was to identify quote unquote the gay individuals right. of history. Right. Alexander the Great, Aristotle, yeah, yeah, yeah. all you know, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington maybe, why not? <laughs> King Henry the Eighth, who knows? <laughs> right, right. That's why he couldn't have boys. Yeah, he was directing his energies elsewhere. No, those are, I don't think that anyone's ever claimed that. But anyway, the Yeah. This this we're, is we're being this silly, is, but yeah, yeah. We're being silly, but this is like actually part of our historiography. Oh yeah. yeah. This the, is how the field is developed. Yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt claiming claiming legitimacy right by identifying these important people in the past right which is an unfortunate it's unfortunate that that has to be a step mm-hmm. and then I and I can certainly see where these Africana studies scholars would would see that you know to to make their splash to make their place in academia they mm-hmm. would have to go down that road yeah there's also a similar conversation about alexander hamilton whether alexander hamilton was um 
was of mixed race mm-hmm. as well. And in a similar kind of conversation about mm-hmm. what what if our one of our founders was at least in some sense black, right? But in those cases too, when we're talking about LGBTQ history or we're talking about Africana studies and claiming these characters, it's also about de-Europeanizing. Yes. De-heterosexualizing yeah. exactly. these right. narratives and trying to shake up a stagnant system. Yeah, and 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 in a sense they're right because it um it never was as straight as we would like to think it was. It was never as white as we would like to think it was. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Um and so you but the problem is we can't always identify and find those those people because they were marginalized they were written out of the story yeah. and so you cling to the ones that you can find, right? You you try to see if there's a way that you know, Abraham Lincoln was gay. Um, And Mary Lefkowitz is obviously upset because she's seeing these scholars claiming Socrates and Cleopatra as black, but doing so without any evidence. Mm -hmm. Just saying, what if he was? Mm -hmm. Right. And then leaving it at that. Right. Right. All right. So. In the introduction to his third volume, written nearly two decades after the first, Bernal responded to his critics. Where I have merely aimed at competitive plausibility, conventional scholars in these fields have required proof, he says. Bernal sees this reluctance to consider the possibility that his theorizing and his use of evidence could be plausible as a continuation of the Aryan model in those fields and among those scholars. In those two decades, though, there were a number of interesting archaeological discoveries which seemed to support Bernal's more thinly evidenced Volume 2 suggestions. For example, an Egyptian statue base with place names from the Aegean, Egyptian and Levantine styles and representations in the frescoes uncovered at the volcanic deposits at Thera, the Mesopotamian and Syrian seals found at the Greek Thames, and paintings with Egypto-Minoan motifs found at Tel Ed Daba'a. So that's the controversy. And it goes, it gets pretty nasty. It gets pretty, um, obviously, racist. Um, and accusations of racism are thrown around uh, between Bernal, Lefkowitz, and the Afro- Afrocentrists. And I wish I, you know, for the Ashante being one example instead of just like, blackwashing an entire group of people um so sometimes in internet history chat rooms often populated by history buffs with a little h and a little b people who really love history but have little to no formal training we see folks railing against the podcasts like ours that don't remain objective right in the presentation of history oh boy yes But one of the first things that good history graduate programs teach their students is that there is no such thing as objectivity. Right. We spend like weeks discussing that. Yeah. When we tell the stories of history, we, the historians, the history podcasters, the history teachers, we all choose which details to include and what evidence to use to support the narrative we present. On the History Buffs podcast, we do our best to present as complete a picture of the stories we tell with a wide range of both primary and secondary sources. And doing that is an important part of our job. 
But our experiences as people living in the real world shape us and the work that we do just as much as our formal training as historians shapes the way that we approach research and storytelling. The very topics we pick to cover on the show are nothing if not a reflection of that. Sometimes we do episodes on stuff that we teach our students (laughs) so that we can use them in class, um, like today's episode. And sometimes we do episodes on our own research topics, like the episode that Averill did uh, about a year ago about Roger Casement. And the Easter Rising of 1916 is an example of that. And sometimes we do episodes on topics that resonate with us personally or politically, like our ongoing episodes about immigration or women's reproductive rights. One of the first things we were told when we started our dissertations was that we should pick a topic that we are passionate about because history PhDs spend between three and seven years working on that project. And then it kind of sticks with you for the next 10 years if you decide to turn it into a book. Unless you are Sarah, because her book is going into print next year, which is only like 1.5 years out of us graduating <laughs> because she's a rock star. Uh, that is if I can ever get the manuscript in. <laughs> but when it's published, we'll, we'll send you all copies. Oh, We'll yeah. do a giveaway. Oh, yeah, we can do a giveaway. Oh, so fancy. Um, actually, no, you should all buy my book. But we'll do one giveaway as like a teaser. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Oh, so what Bernal's work reveals... Particularly things like his Aryan thesis about the conscious and unconscious whitewashing of classical civilization during the 19th and early 20th century is that historians are very much a product of their time. For nearly 150 years, that meant that the white European and American men who monopolized professorial academia wrote history that worked for them. Step-by-step analyses of civil war battles. Biographies of Napoleon, summations of the rulers of Europe, great white man histories of the world. In the context of racial slavery in the 18th century, anti-Muhammadism or anti-Muslim, you know, sentiments of the 19th century, scientific racism, and then Jim Crow in the 19th century as well, it should really come as no surprise that the great white men writing the histories of the world would intentionally or unintentionally, I guess, if we're going to give people the benefit of the doubt, exclude the non-white from their understanding of the ancient Greeks. Bernal's own fascination with the subject came from exploring his Jewish roots and examining the Hebrew language and Levantine culture in the Mediterranean and drawing then connections with Greek language, mythology, and culture. As a younger man, he was a part of the anti-imperialism and anti-Vietnam movements. And so shaking up the academy was very much modus operandi. It's just kind of what he did. And so he found his passion in this subject, right? Right, yeah. So we won't speculate on what personal or political stake motivated Mary Lefkowitz to take issue with Bernal and his thesis. Though hastily pulled together and editorially inflammatory from the start, Not Out of Africa, How Afrocentrism Became an Excuse to Teach Myth as History is pretty obnoxious and incendiary title. Lefkowitz made some legitimate criticisms of Bernal's work, though she couched it in language of finality rather than healthy academic discussion. On the one hand, I can understand the resistance to a non-expert making major field-shifting assertions, which we sort of alluded to earlier. It can be very, very irritating when somebody out of left field switches their major focus, the the, the time period or mm-hmm. uh, subject that they study and are suddenly writing these groundbreaking works and you feel like they're, you know, don't belong, right? Not that, I mean, obviously 
later career scholars like do that all the time. Right. But sometimes it can feel as though yeah. people are, you know, jumping in and trying to pretend as though they're experts when yeah. that's their first foray into that field. Right. But on the other hand, academia has to be an opening and ongoing dialogue. The study of history is not static. Otherwise, there would be no need to issue new PhDs every year or write new history books. Putting the puzzle pieces of the past together in different ways to shed new light on old ideas or old light on modern ideas to better understand the human experience of this world. This is the crux of our profession. That's why we do what we do. And that's why we, we created this podcast. Whether you're an amateur history buff with a little H and a little B, or one of us degree-mongering big H and big B history buffs working on this podcast, or you're just somewhere in between, we're all part of the process of better understanding the past. We need to be having these conversations, and we need to be having them civilly. I would like to say that it's not often that academics get into these kind of tiffs. Um, but I've heard of more than I uh, care to. Mm -hmm. Few get as nasty as this one did. Um, some of the awful anti-Semitic things that people, other historians and scholars, educated people that they said to Mary Lefkowitz were really absolutely unacceptable. Um, but again, that goes back to the fallibility of even we few who pursue that noble dream of objectivity. We are people too. Sometimes we are overpuffed know-it-alls. Sometimes we do know all know it all about some things. Um, and sometimes we do and say stupid and sensitive and wrong things. Right. And I think that these that you're right to say that these these types of debates certainly do happen, especially debates where, you know, one article appears and then another article appears and they're clearly like talking against each other. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's how historiography moves forward. Yes. Um but generally, it doesn't devolve into this sort of... It doesn't get of, as public. Yeah, it doesn't get as public. It doesn't make as much of a controversy. Yeah. Um, and it usually doesn't devolve into people, like, calling each other racist, generally. Yeah. generally although that yeah. does certainly happen. Does. Um, But just in my own field, there have been really sort of, at least within the historical community, publicized debates over the, the, the very field that I study, quote-unquote, dark history of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, there have been really sort of intense fights where people kind of draw their battle lines and retreat into kind of their corners with people that, right. Yeah. Um, with people that agree with them. Yeah. Right. Um, and so you, you, you have to sort of align yourself with which side of the fight you're on in that case. Right. Um, I also was just thinking of another book in American history that I think functions again, not as controversial as black Athena, but in a, in a way, Th those arguments over sourcing were very similar. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, I don't know if you've ever read Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States. Negative. Um, really, really powerful book. But a lot of historians, you know, read it and think this is doing a good thing in terms of its like political, what is trying to do politically, trying mm -hmm. to redress the wrongs of who's been written out of American history. Yep. But at the same time, he's doing some of the same thing as Bern same things as Bernal finding things sort of that he wishes were there. Yeah. You know, yeah. or, or making too much or, or misinterpreting documents yep. and reading them wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's a, still an important book, yeah. but it also has flaws yeah. very much like I see Bernal. It's important. I, so I think it's important to recognize and to acknowledge. 
our biases and the various factors that shape who we are as historians and how we interact with the world and with each other. But more importantly, I think, from these kinds of disagreements, the ones that blow up like the Black Athena one did and the ones that just get kind of mildly uncomfortable. Um, and I encourage you to look up the Daniel Goldhagen controversy and conference fiasco where, where he presented his his argument for Hitler's willing executioners to an American audience. So Hitler's willing executioners is this book that argues that um, German civilians, right? German civilians wanted to kill Jews Mm -hmm. and it basically blamed that generation for being anti-Semitic for the entire war. Right. Right. Um, It was actually really well received in Germany because a younger crowd was coming up in the academic world Mm. and they were like, yeah, it was our parents fault. So we're absolved of guilt. But then this came to the American audience and they were like, oh, hell no, son. Really? Oh, yeah. It Interesting. Got, it got real uncomfortable at one conference. And then, of course, Christopher Browning wrote his Ordinary Men, which uh-huh. is a direct response to Goldhagen's thesis in, in Hitler's Willing, willing Executions, which is like Ordinary Men is these are ordinary men and they drank themselves into stupor before they had to go out and kill people. Mm. They suffered. Which is, does not absolve them. But right. This right. was not a case of. They weren't gleefully no. going out to murder. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's super, really fascinating. Super interesting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, these conversations, whether they're intense or, or just uncomfortable, they give us a greater nuance and better understanding of the past. Bernal and, and the Afrocentrists were criticized for accusing the Greeks of stealing Egyptian culture because the, the evidence he presented did not really support that thesis. Um, but what his Jacques moment achieved was something more important. He shed light on an issue that had been long ignored or overlooked by the predominantly white academy. Ultimately, the answer is not that Greek culture emerged in a vacuum, nor that it straight up plagiarized Egyptian culture. Rather, the Mediterranean world was a region of cultural diffusion. People have been moving around and bringing language and culture and goods into new places since before the land bridges disappear. Like, mm-hmm. That's just worldwide, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our understanding of the ancient world is better understood not as one monolithic culture shaping all the others, but of ideas, things, and people moving around and shaping the world as they went. But also that similar and cool ideas and inventions and philosophies could emerge in different places at roughly the same time. Yeah, and they do. And they do. Yeah. And they that that's... If there is nothing to evidence one culture appropriating it from another, we can believe, I think safely, that human innovation is not specific to one group. You know, great minds and and all that. Mm -hmm. So it got a little weird. We don't often talk about... You know, the we were very historiographical. I know it was like like the history. Hopefully, it wasn't painful. No, I I don't think so. And I think that sometimes these kind of peeks into the profession are. Good for people who are, obviously, if you're listening to our podcast and you're interested in history. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's good even for amateur history um, buffs, people who love history and want to learn more about it to kind of pull back the curtain and look at how the sausage is made. Right. (laughs) Because one of the things that I find often when I when I talk to students or um, talk to just people who aren't historians, they often ask, like, what exactly do you do? Because don't we already know what happened? Yeah. Like, we already know. So why are you, right? why do you have a job, mm-hmm. right? But the thing is, we don't know. And even what we do know 
changes all the time yeah. based on what we learn, right? Or what we discover or we go out, someone goes out and like Goldhagen and digs up something new and makes a new argument. And maybe that argument is rebutted, but it still pushed the conversation forward. Yeah. You know, because um, Christopher Brown went and used the same exact resource or source base and interpreted them, interpreted them differently. differently. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what that's what I do in my manuscript yep. with with stories that other people have told. And I've said, well, no, I'm, I read it. I see that this way. And some of um, us use sources that no one has used for the, you know, like I work on gay men in modern Ireland and nobody's looked at the right. court cases. I could right. tell because they were very dirty. Right. When I pulled them out of the archive. Very, very dirty. And so there are still stories that have never been told. Yeah. But even for the stories that have been told, um, sometimes we need to go back and look at them again and reinterpret yeah. and rewrite and, and... And rethink. Rethink, right. And, yeah, reframe everything. And so sometimes these books, books like Bernal's, which maybe they weren't, you know, perfect, flawless, <laughs> but they pushed the conversation yeah, forward. They, they They helped things to keep going. And, and even the very worst histories yeah. do that, I think. And I think by sort of the late or the early 2000s, late 2000s, Lefkowitz, she... She recognized that too. Mm, interesting. She, for all of the controversy and obviously the personal attacks that she she experienced from from her opponents, she she knows that this is an ongoing conversation. And for all the hardship, you know, the, in the moment that she may have faced, and that, um, in that obviously some of these scholars of the Africana vein that they felt they experienced every day in their profession because they were, right. you know, marginalized or right. miniaturized in, in academia, um, that these kinds of conversations move the entire profession forward. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. You can find show notes and further reading, as well as the archive for the History Buffs podcast at digpodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig underscore history, and on Facebook at digpodcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>